Good morning. Good morning. Please pray with me. Lord God, help us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 34. Of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered in shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The Lord of the angel encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desire to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Beth. I almost feel like I don't need to preach. Um, the singing this morning was a sermon unto itself. And in some ways, it's been actually a really sweet demonstration. It's like a sermon with skin on that we can literally sink our fingers into. But because we've been singing uh, songs that say, like we mentioned earlier, uh, when our strength is failing, still we will bless the Lord. Come Thou Fount, our first hymn, um, ah, shoot, I've, it came to me up there. Let me look it up real quick. It, I promise this applies. <laughs> prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And even the last song we sang, All I Have is Christ. In all things, 
all we bank on is Christ. That's kind of the theme that we're thinking on. What does it look like to, to worship God no matter what? So last week and this week, we've been exploring Psalm 34. Uh, Jamie, my wife, is always very kind and asks me, how's it going throughout the week? How's your sermon prep going? And she asked me uh, last night, how's, how does your sermon look? I'm going to give you a little window into my sermon prep. I was like, I don't really know. Um, partly because, and I told her, I said, I, I think I've got all the content, but I'm trying to make it fit together, and I'm not sure I see the logic and the order of it still. And it's occurred to me that, that maybe that's good. Uh, Hebrew, in fact, Psalm 34 is originally written in Hebrew, and Hebrew is not a linear language. Uh, Greek is very linear, it's very logical, but Hebrew is much more artistic, and, and there, there's just, you just kind of get the whole picture at once, and then you start to piece it together and see connections. It's less of a line, and it's more of a web. And that's what we're starting to see, especially this morning, as we continue in Psalm 34. Beth, I'm so glad when I asked Beth to read, I'm glad that you read the little introduction. That's actually in the Hebrew. Psalm 34, if you're following your Bible, it says it's a psalm of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech and fled. So we know the setting of Psalm 34. And actually, we can read about it in 1 Samuel 21. If you want, you can go home and read about it. It is scintillating. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes. Uh, king David has been appointed to be king, but there's another king, Saul, who gets jealous that a new king has been appointed while he's still in control, so he tries to kill David. David flees, and he escapes to a country or a city-state called Gath, where he thinks he's safe. But then word gets out about who he is and that he might be a threat to the power of the king of, of, king of Gath named Abimelech. And so this guy tries to kill David. And David has no way out, and all he can figure out to do is to pretend to be off his rocker nuts. Like that's his only way out as far as he can tell. And so in 1 Samuel 21, we read that he actually, he starts just drooling and letting saliva run down his beard and shouting all of these incomprehensible words. It's like, if you don't ever know what to do or say, just drool and start shouting incomprehensible words and you can get out of anything. And then David writes this psalm. And he writes this psalm in response to this situation which is a little bit jarring. You know, when you just read the rest of the psalm on its own, verses one through whatever, you can consider the introduction like verse zero. This is this lofty, flowing, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will extol his name forever. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's, it's, this, it's this, he's on a high, it sounds like, right? And yet, when we stop and read verse zero, we realize that David is writing this right after he's narrowly escaped by the skin of his teeth and only in a last-ditch effort to save his own life. Last week, we considered this and asked, what does it look like to worship God, taste and see that the Lord is good, extol the Lord at all times, even when life doesn't seem so good, when the king of Gath is out to get you? And we saw that the foundation of that kind of worship the foundation of even our ability to will ourselves to worship when we're not feeling it is to remember that God is always good, even when life isn't. Because life isn't always good. We all, we all have tasted that in different areas of life. Life is not always good. But the foundation of the ability to worship at all times comes down simply to remembering God is always good, even when life isn't. There's that, old, there's that old saying, there's like a call and response, and certain 
Christian circles. God is good. Anybody know it? All the time. All the time. God is good. That's what we're talking about here. This morning is not so much a progression of that, but it's almost like we're going to look at the same truth from a different angle. Because remember, Hebrew is not linear. It's like a web. And this morning, we're going to look at a little more of how do we do that and how does God call us to respond when life isn't so good, when it seems like there's no way out. And we're going to look at really just two phrases. And the more I've spent time in Psalm 34, I mean, we could spend months just mining the depths of this one psalm, but we don't have time. So we just want to look at two, really two key phrases that help us to understand how do we respond when life's not so good. The two phrases I want to look at are this, to seek the Lord and to fear the Lord. To seek the Lord and to fear the Lord. These really come from a little chunk of verses right in the middle of Psalm 34. If you have your Bible, I'm looking at verses 4 through 11, and we're actually going to dip into like 13 and 14 as well, but mostly verses 4 through 11. Seek the Lord and fear the Lord. And what we're going to see is they're actually very closely related. They're very closely related. Let's start with what does it mean, what does David actually mean when he says, seek the Lord, especially when times are difficult? Now, did you notice as Beth was reading how much sensory language is in this psalm? This just struck me this week. And you could, you could kind of lump it all into the category of seeking, but he actually engages a lot of different senses. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And then verse 10 kind of bookends that section. He says the same thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then he hints at it again in verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant. So we're talking about seeing. We're talking about our eyes. But David engages his other senses as well. Look at verse 6. This poor man called out, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Now we're talking about something auditory, something verbal. There's a verbal engagement with God. And then look at verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. It's such a sensory experience of God as if David is saying, see him, hear him, taste him. That's a little weird, but like, let's dig into that a little bit. What does it mean to see God and hear him and taste him? I don't think he means for us to create this one-to-one -one correlation so that we can check those boxes and then move on, but David's relationship with God is incredibly visceral and present. God is so real to him that it's as if he can taste it, which demands and introduces a question, how do you experience God? Is God purely abstract? For so many of us, I'm, I, I tend to live in the realm of abstractions and analysis and logical connections. And it's so easy, if you're like me, for God to feel abstract and detached, that he's kind of this intellectual idea, but not much else. David challenges, challenges us to say, no, he's, he's so real. You can see him and talk to him and even taste him. He's not just a God who lives in the world of theory, but he is intimately, really present. He's not just in the world of the ideal, but in the world of practice. For David, God is very, 
very real. He notices that right after he escapes Abimelech. And he can taste God's goodness. Why? Because he just about tasted death. And as he looks back and reflects on God's presence in his life, he realizes just how near to him God was. That's maybe one key to tasting God's goodness. If you're like me and God seems to be so abstract and distant so much of the time, maybe you wonder, like, okay, I I want to taste, to feel, to touch, to see. God, I don't know where to start. David gives us a clue, even through the structure of this psalm, when he remembers what God has done. When we remember what God has done, and it's so easy to forget. So when we not only remember what he's done, but when we remember to remember what God has done, where he has been good to us in the past, then we're better able to notice and sense him even in the present. So last week I shared the story about our family's story about Jamie and my wife being rejected from a drug trial and how that was the worst possible news we could have gotten in that moment and yet it was the best possible thing that could have happened to us. The more we remember that story, The more we remember how desperate we felt in that moment and yet how perfectly God has cared for us in the years since, then the more we're able to notice God's actual presence with us even here and now. Taste and see. Seek the Lord. I sought the Lord and he answered me. There's a connection to be made here, by the way. When we think about seeking the Lord, Jesus has a very famous saying about seeking him. Do you remember what he says? He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For to him who asks, it will be given. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. In all things, even when we just stop and remember and notice We are practicing what it looks like to seek the Lord, to look for him, to pay attention to God in everyday life and especially in those moments when life is not looking so optimistic. There's one more way that David keys in on what it looks like to seek the Lord, and that's this phrase, to fear the Lord. Now that seems like an unusual combination, but... David actually means for them, I think, to work very intimately together. And we know they're connected even because of the poetic structure of the psalm. So twice in verses 4 and verse, in verse, four and verse 10, David talks about seeking the Lord. They're like bookends. And in Hebrew poetry especially, when you see a theme and then you see it repeated, that tends to be one kind of unit. It makes up its own little section. And especially in Hebrew poetry, when you see that kind of section, if you want to see what the poet or the author really means by it, what they're really trying to get at, you go straight to the middle. There's a symmetry to Hebrew poetry. And so if you, you you know, A, B, C, D, E, all the way through Z, you know A is parallel to Z and B is parallel to Y, and you get the idea. And if you really want to get to the meat of the matter, go straight to the center. It's kind of like a burger, right? Think of it like a burger. Hebrews, yeah, they can eat burgers. They can't eat pork, but they can eat burgers, okay? So think of it like a, a, a good Old Testament burger where the first and last parts are the bun 
and then you get some toppings, but right in the middle, what do you have? You have a beef patty. If you don't have a beef patty, you don't have a burger. Like you can order a burger, you can go to a restaurant now and order a burger without a bun. That's weird, but like if you're not into carbs or gluten or whatever, I get it, okay? And you still have a burger. You can order a burger without any condiments, just bread, beef, bread, it's still a burger. But if you order bread, lettuce, tomato, ketchup, mustard, onions, mayo, bread, you don't have a burger. You have, you have a weird veggie sandwich, I guess. What's the meat that David is getting to? If the, if the bun, verses 4 and 10, is seeking the Lord, go straight to the middle. Literally, verse 7, the center verse. And what does he say? He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. He's talking about deliverance, remember? And this is not just a one-off. He actually does this twice in the psalm. He does it in this little section, and he does it in the whole psalm. There are 22 verses in the psalm. You know what verse 11 says? Halfway, come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. In some ways, it's, it's about more than this, but it's certainly not about less than the fear of the Lord. Let's dig into that just a little bit, because you cannot understand Psalm 34 without doing business with the fear of the Lord. It's a phrase that kind of gives us fits. It's a phrase that makes us uncomfortable. It probably should. Usually we take one of two approaches. We kind of try to like explain it away, and oh, it must not mean what it, what it says. It must mean something different. Or we just ignore it and move on. But let's not try to explain it away. And in fact, let's not try to just ignore it. There's something in the phrase that might even be intentionally uncomfortable. If we could resolve it neatly and make sense of it and then move on, we could, again, check those boxes and then forget about it. But the whole point of the fear of the Lord is that it's something that is present with us constantly, reminding us that God is present with us constantly. There are a couple misconceptions. We'll get those out of the way first. The fear of the Lord does not mean to be afraid of God. It means something very different. So in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament authors talk about fearing the Lord, they don't mean be afraid of him. They don't mean God is like this bolt of lightning and don't you dare cross him lest he turn you into a little pile of ashes. That's not what they're talking about. To fear God is not to be afraid of him. In fact, every time we see the phrase fear of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's a positive trait. In Proverbs 1, the author of Proverbs, mostly Solomon, although there's some other authors, frames it and says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord leads to wisdom. Anybody who doesn't want to be wise, by the way, in here? No? Then somehow there has to be a healthy fear of the Lord. Look back at verse 7 in Psalm 34 here. The angel of the Lord encamps, takes up residence, patrols, guards. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. That doesn't explain exactly what it means to fear God, but it gives us a result that when we fear God, there's an aspect of protection, that he protects us. Now, you might be thinking, well, I know people who are incredibly godly, and God didn't seem to protect them. What about them? It's a really good question. David actually addresses it later in the psalm. We don't have time to get deeply into it, but in verse 19, notice, he says, the righteous person may have many troubles. The righteous person may have many troubles. 
Following God, fearing God, walking with God does not guarantee that we will not have trouble. And Jesus says the same thing at the end of a very famous interaction with his followers, his disciples. The last thing he says, John 16, he says, in this world you will, guaranteed, you will have trouble. The righteous person, verse 19, may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them all. The Lord delivers them all. And you might be thinking, well, Chris, I don't feel like God's delivering me right now. And I get it. It might not feel that way. It's often a matter of perspective. We can safely assume that when King David was running for his life, escaping by the skin of his teeth, he didn't feel like God was protecting him or delivering him in that moment either. Remember, he's, David is not writing this with the situation through the windshield. He's looking through the rearview mirror. There are so many times when we're in the thick of something. Imagine, remember how much it rained on Friday? Like, my neighbor, I don't know if this is true, my neighbor said three inches in 45 minutes. I don't know, we got water in our basement. We haven't had water in our basement in years. It was a lot of rain. Imagine driving through that. When you're in the middle of that storm, you can't see five feet ahead of you. What are you doing, God? But when that storm is behind you and you're looking at it through the rearview mirror, now you can see more clearly. The fear of the Lord insists stubbornly, stubbornly, that even when all we see through the windshield is massive drops of rain pelting us, that God is still delivering us. It's a stubborn trust. It's not kind of this flimsy, blind faith, but it's a trust that proves itself through our actions, which is what David means in Psalm 34, verse 11. He's talking about the fear of the Lord again. Listen to what he says. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And you think, okay, teach me. Teach me the fear of the Lord. What does that look like? And he says, I'm so glad you asked. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Let's pursue peace, that is. Notice. David's understanding of the fear of the Lord is not about being afraid. It's not about a negative emotion. It's actually not about an emotion at all. It starts with a very active something. In this case, with David stubbornly insisting on following God, on even keeping his lips from evil and fleeing from evil and doing good, no matter what. David teaches us that part of what it means to fear the Lord is based and rooted in literally not how we feel about God, but in what we do and what we say. That even in the thick of the storm, especially in the thick of the storm, we follow him. It's an active trust. Remember those... Um, remember, 20 years ago, you could get those rubber bracelets and they said WWJD on them. And it stands for what would Jesus do? And some of you are kind of smiling and laughing. Some of you are kind of like, right? Because what happened? They got totally oversaturated and they became cliche and they became kind of trite. But there's, there's actually a lot of wisdom in that. And even in having something that you look at every now and then to remind you 
whether it's an ordinary conversation or whether it's an extraordinary event, how, how would Jesus respond? To fear God means in part, and there's more to it, but there's certainly not less. To fear God means in part that we speak and act in everyday life. This could be at the gym. This could be at, the work, at, at work. This could be just while you're walking your dog and chatting with your neighbors. It could be when you're around the dinner table with your family. To speak and to act and to move as though God is right there with us. You see the connection with seeking the Lord? When we seek the Lord, we're trying to notice him right there with us. And when we fear the Lord, we are acting as though he's right there with us. If God is with you at all times, in the ordinary moments, in the really painful moments of life, in the really good moments of life, how does that change and affect how you speak? The words you use, the language you use, the things you'll talk about or the subjects you won't talk about, the things we will or won't say about people who aren't there. You see, to fear the Lord, David says, involves speaking and acting at all moments with the reverence with which we would speak and act if God were there. And when we do, David promises, God provides for us, he cares for us. Fear the Lord, you, holy, you his holy people. This is verse 9. For those who fear him lack nothing. And then the very next verse, verse 10, says, The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is how we know they're connected. Because those who fear the Lord lack, Lord lack nothing, and those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He's basically repeating himself. And even though we often only see God's presence in hindsight through the rearview mirror, that doesn't mean he's not there. So we seek God. We remember to remember. This isn't just abstract. Maybe even take a moment right now and start thinking through, when has God been present with you? When has he been present with you when you didn't think there was any way out? At the time, you probably didn't feel God's presence. You may have wondered whether God was even real. But now you look back and you see God's presence and his reality. At the time, David probably didn't see any way out. You don't pretend to be insane and start drooling if you have other better options. But now he looks back and he sees God's actual presence with him. That's how he can say, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. Have you ever, like, it just struck me, as I started looking over this psalm a few weeks ago, that's an outrageous claim. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. We serve and follow a God who answers us. That should be a little bit scary. Maybe that's part of what it means to fear the Lord as well. I don't know. 
A God who is actually willing to answer us. When we cry out for help, he's willing to come to us. He comes to us. He doesn't, we don't cry out for help and then he says, well, you better figure your way out of this one. You got yourself into this mess. Now you can find yourself a way out of this mess. God doesn't say that. God became one of us through his son Jesus to lead us out of the mess. God didn't say, look what you have done. Look what a mess you've made of things and give us a couple cleaning supplies and say, start mopping up. No, he came with a mop and he started mopping up. God doesn't always answer our prayers in the ways that we want or expect him to. In fact, maybe he, sel- maybe he seldom does. I heard, I heard one um, pastor and author put it this way. He says, in fact, God gives us what we would have prayed for if we knew what he knows. God gives us what we would have prayed for if we knew what he knows. And Jesus himself experienced this. Remember in the garden, the night before he was killed, and the night before he was murdered, and Jesus goes into a garden and he prays. And his prayer is so intense, Luke tells us he was sweating and his sweat was like drops of blood. I don't know if he was actually bleeding or not. To me, it's not, the Greek isn't really clear, but, but this is, I mean, he is feeling it. And he says, God, if there's any other way, any other way, this can't be the way. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, what is that? That's seeking the Lord. That's fearing the Lord. That's insisting on following God even when you see no way out. And it looked like there was no way out. And sure enough, on Friday, they came and they hung him on a tree and he slowly suffocated to death excruciatingly and it looked like there was no way out. And on Saturday, it looked like there was no way out and they had buried his body. And on Sunday, it looked like there was no way out and three women were walking to to go to the tomb and to anoint his dead body with spices and they found the tomb empty. He He had made a way out, you see? We don't always know what God is doing in the moment, but we seek him and we fear him because he is always making a way out. That's how God can say, seek me, fear me, follow me, dare I say, obey me. Not obey me so that I can deliver you. Obey me because I already have delivered you. Jesus has died, past tense. Jesus has been risen. risen. That's not good grammar. Jesus has been raised, thank you, from the dead. Uh, Past tense. Completely lost my place. (laughs) Past tense. He has delivered us from our sin. Therefore, he says, seek me, follow me, obey me, fear me. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So let Christ live in you. Seek him, fear him, for he has delivered us. Amen.